This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. And you're listening to Policing Matters. We're back and I'm Jim Dudley, host. And, uh, you know, we've had some criticism of policing from external sources, from the media and from anti-police groups, uh, criticizing uh, individual officers, maybe whole agencies. And, hey, from within, we want to police ourselves and we want everyone working on the same level. Uh, everybody pulling their own weight. We don't like to see bad actors in policing. And managing police officers is a difficult task already. It's multifaceted. It's fast paced. We ask officers to do many things and in the process to be smart, thoughtful, judicious, efficient, and thorough. Some make assumptions that an officer has complete control over their environment. Of course, that's not true. Officers can be well-trained and intelligent, yet may be challenged in dealing with individuals under the influence of alcohol, drugs, or in a mental health crisis. They are often asked to go into situations where people are in conflict or combative. And in these cases, de-escalation may not be uh, a theory, but rather an achievable act. Many agencies use a system to help detect problems by looking at statistics accumulated in early warning systems or an EWS or an early intervention system, an EIS. And today's guest explains how the systems may be able to get the most out of an agency while keeping in mind the officer and the community as well. Well, Robert McNeely Jr. is one of the nation's most highly respected metropolitan police chiefs. In his 37 year career, he guided the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police through 10 of its most turbulent years taking office one week after a series of lawsuits filed against the city by individuals and in the ACLU led to a United States Department of Justice investigation and the first civil rights pattern or practice consent decree in American history. He's the author of The Blue Continuum, a police chief's perspective on what went wrong with policing today and how to fix it and a leading trainer and consultant in police management techniques. Well, welcome to the show, Chief McNeely. Well, thank you for having me, Jim. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've looked through uh, excerpts in the book. Uh, I really like the way you've uh, broken it down into levels and, and made it really easy to understand the influences and the effects and how we can change things. What's the greatest challenge to managing officers under your supervision from sergeants all the way up to chief of police? Well, there's a lot of them, but primarily for any police department to operate well, there's four main things that the department has to do well, policy, training, supervision, and discipline when necessary. And I usually say that when officers make mistakes in their career, 95% of the time it's the fault of the department because they either didn't have a good policy, they didn't provide appropriate training, they didn't have good supervision to guide the officers. And for those who strayed or needed help with counseling or any other form of corrective action, they may not have got it. And so when, when the mistakes happen that, that are gonna get the department sued, 
a lot of the liability lies with the city. And officers, from what a supervisor once told me, officers will do just about anything a supervisor wants them to do. They just have to really know you mean it. So if you say something and there's no follow-up on it, they think, well, he's just tell telling us that because he has to or she has to, and they don't pay attention to it. But if they know you mean it and will follow up on it, they'll pretty much do what you ask them to do. Well, you know, I mean, I, I'm guilty of exactly what you just said. And me and my fellow officers used to call it the two call rule, right? Like, if he really means it, he'll tell us again. So I hear you exactly. And, you know, I think officers uh, respond better when you explain why you want them to do what you're asking them to do. I mean, we're a paramilitary organization policing, right? But um, is it effective to just order someone to do something? Um, you know, what kind of response would you get from just ordering as opposed to saying, hey, look, this is why I need you to do this? Yeah, I think if those days ever did exist, and we heard that they did at one time, maybe in the 40s and 50s, where people were just told what to do and they did it. But, you know, I grew up in the 60s, and there had to be a lot more explanation that went along with it. And that's why I say training is so important, because you just don't tell somebody to do something. You have to issue them a policy and train them in it. A policy that's not accompanied by training is, is pretty much useless, because nobody's going to understand it or be able to follow it. Mm -hmm. But Training is the, the biggest thing. In fact, when I took over, I, I led two different departments. When I took over those departments, the first thing I wanted to do was double the training budget. And then the next year after, I wanted to double that because I realized to really, to get a department to do what you wanted to, you have to provide adequate training. And that goes, what you were talking about earlier, when you talk about the critics of policing and they want to defund police, that's the exact, they're going to get the exact opposite result. And that's what they did. They want to defund. So what's the first thing a department does is they cut the training budget. So now that's cut. And so are you going to have a better department? No, you're probably not. And then people are going to become demoralized. They're going to leave the department. Other people aren't going to want to sign on. And then we end up with what we saw for the last two years. So the police departments need the funding to be able to train. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you get a, a def exactly what you said. You lose the training and it's just this sort of like uh, self-fulfilling prophecy that they say we're awful. They take away the training funds and then we're not as good as we should be. Uh, so, you know, in, in the introduction, I talked about everybody pulling their weight, uh, you know, equal distribution of work. Um we, we started to look at early warning systems or early intervention systems, I don't know, at least 15, 20 years ago. Um, it seemed when they were first devised, maybe they were discipline oriented, where we were looking at faults, uh, looking for patterns of um, officers who, who were not pulling their weight or were actually you know, a detriment to the department. <clears throat> what was your experience with an early warning system and how did you use it? As I was kind of through the ranks, I read about early warning systems in different departments. And let me say that an early warning system, I like to refer to it as an early intervention system because that's what it is. It's more than a warning, it's intervention when it's necessary. They differ from department to department. And I did read about uh, Boston where when an officer had four complaints, 
that were registered against the officer over a certain period of time, the supervisor brought them in to discuss it with them. And what they saw from there was a reduction in the number of complaints. Now, I read about other departments that had more widespread uh, areas they tracked, including even credit ratings. And that hurt the department because, and I can understand credit ratings because if you've got somebody you want to put in narcotics, you want to make sure they, they don't have monetary issues before you do that. But that can be a personally invasive. Mm-hmm. So uh, departments that did that usually lost their system, the ability to use the system because there's just criticism of all that it was looking at and it was called Big Brother. They were looking at what people were doing off duty. But when I wanted to d- design a system, all I wanted to do was look at what officers were doing while they were at work. So their traffic stops, their arrests, uh, their sick time, their vehicle collisions, things that could be problematic. Because if you think about, like I mentioned in my book, and there was a Pew Research study back in 2017 that showed 21% of officers come to work angry and frustrated, and it affects their performance. And then if you look at other studies that show up to 25% of police officers have substance abuse problems, primarily alcohol, and officers have a tendency to um, look because of the stress they're under. They, they're under such enormous stress that sometimes they stop after work just to do what people do, share stories and try to alleviate the stress. But sometimes that can go on too long or too often. And so some officers develop alcohol problems. And once that happens, then you usually have relationship problems, financial problems. And there's a lot of problems that come from that. But what I wanted to look for was things that would be a cue to their supervisor that we need to start looking at some of our people. Because every supervisor will say that they're primarily interested in taking care of their people. But I just got to wonder how that happens. How can, two t- for every officer killed feloniously in the line of duty, two will commit suicide. And I've heard that 10 will be fired. So we're losing a lot of people to suicide, to firings. Then there's a lot more that are disciplined. How can that happen when we're supposed to be looking after our people? So we just needed the data to be able to track. And if you look at somebody with substance abuse problems, they're probably going to miss court because they can't get up in the morning. They're going to use sick time. They might have a vehicle collision. Maybe they were irritable one day and then they get a citizen's complaint. Maybe they get sued. Now, if you have all these factors, you're looking at all this data and it starts to point in one direction, the supervisor needs to sit down with that person and say, hey, what's going on? What can we do to help? And you're, you're right. If, if an early intervention system is designed to discipline people, it's going to fail from the beginning. My whole concept was to design a system that you can identify problems before they really get that bad, before somebody has to lose their job or before somebody quits the department. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know you make some really good points. Uh, I think in San Francisco, we patterned ourselves after the Boston um, program. And the idea was same thing, four or more complaints within a a time period. It was a mandatory meeting with the sergeant and the sergeant had to look them over. And I know a lot of times the sergeants mitigated um, the behaviors or the errors and sometimes just uh, did some in-house retraining, maybe an admonishment, something like that. Um, I know the the idea, the theory was that off-duty behavior did have an impact on on-duty performance. But as you say, these these have to be 
concern focused over the concern of the employee rather than discipline focused or you know the idea of catching somebody doing something wrong. That's right. And I'll tell you what was most significant. And we built a system at that time, it tracked like 19 fields. I think in Pittsburgh now they track maybe 24 because they added some things mm-hmm. um, like secondary employment. But if you if you look at uh, some of the fields that were tracked, searches and seizures, um, traffic stops, what we found was that from the data that was being captured, we were able to identify, 90% of the time it identified the star performers. And so Pittsburgh, we were under financial constraints. We were actually even under state oversight because of finances. Uh, so when I, when I took over as chief, we had about 1,200 officers. When I left, we had under 900. But even with losing 25% of our department, we had the crime rate continue to come down, the clearance rates were coming up, and the gun seizures off the street were increasing. So there were a lot of significant changes. But, and I can, I attribute that to Jim Collins' book, From Good to Great, he talks about getting the right people on the bus, getting the right people off, the wrong people off the bus, and getting the people that are on the bus in the right seat. Because if you've got somebody that's doing a lot of searches and seizures, and they're leading a station, well, they've already shown that they have the initiative, they can go out and do these searches and, and find drugs. Maybe they're better suited to work narcotics and the people who are doing all the traffic stops maybe they're better suited for traffic division because that seems to be their interest so what you're doing is identifying the star performers we had officers receive awards because of their activity levels so and i would say 90 percent of the time that was the case only 10 percent of the time did an officer need to be pulled in to get some counseling and or training or reassignment but the discipline only came from an infraction an officer may have had that a supervisor knew of or, or observed. And, and so it didn't come through the early intervention system. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of good things that did come from the early intervention system. And even now today in policing, we recognize that we have to do more for our officers. If you looked at what happened over this last couple of years, when an officer starts to maybe become angry or, or take some measure that he or she should not, we're looking at our other officers to intervene. Mm-hmm. There's the EPIC program, Ethical Policing is Courageous. There's the, you know, the bystander training for officers. And, and it even works that if the sergeant is the person who is starting to make mistakes, a subordinate officer can come forward and say, hey, Sarge, maybe I can handle this case. So. The, the idea is we're looking out for our officers. We're really, we need the training. We need the early intervention, whatever it takes to save officers careers or even their lives, because a lot of times their career is going so badly. And I can say that while I was on the job and that was over a period of 29 years with Pittsburgh police, we lost six police officers that were killed in the, in the line of duty. But I knew more than double that that committed suicide. And some are friends of mine and you just didn't see it. So the, the key is let's start looking at the data to see if we can get any signs that somebody's screaming for help because they are, they're out there, they need help. Screaming for help. Yeah. No, I mean, great points. And, uh, 
and again, you know, the peripheral things, uh, you know, we want to keep our, our officers uh, focused and doing a good job, but those sort of peripheral issues that we may not have noticed before that may have indicated that they were depressed or, you know, abusing a substance or that they were spiraling down. Um, it, it's another side benefit of an early intervention system that you just pointed out. Yeah, and you know, I read recently that they say the average person in their lifetime will encounter two traumatic incidents, like somebody gets killed next to them, or uh, they, they may be raped, or the subject of an armed robbery. But they, this, the data was saying, the article was saying that an officer who does a 20-year career will encounter 800 of those incidents. And so when you when you deal with that, yes, it's obvious that there's gonna be some post-traumatic stress for that officer. And unfortunately, there aren't enough trained professionals in the counseling field and psych psychology field that know how to address all that. And so usually the only people that get sent to a psychologist are the people who are involved in a critical incident where somebody dies. Mm -hmm. So. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot more officers that could benefit from, from being able to get some type of counseling, professional counseling. And an early intervention system, that is one of the options. When you notify, when you see that the data is pointing towards one officer who's having a lot of activity, that possibly maybe this officer needs help. And it's something that at least the supervisor can offer. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, it was one of the questions I had for you uh, when I was thinking about this. The, um, you know, when you introduce an early intervention system, at times you'll hear uh, officers respond by saying, well, do nothing, do nothing wrong. And I think in our, you know, post-pandemic stage, with all the criticism on police officers, you hear that refrain again, hey, do nothing, do nothing wrong. So, maybe proactive policing goes out the window or you don't get out of the car to address, you know, an officer observed activity that, you know, you probably know is, is uh, suspicious. And so there's that tendency to pull back. How do you look at the aggregate data when you have, you know, the span of control is maybe a sergeant and seven officers, right? So that sergeant is reviewing his squad of officers and he looks at the use of force log and sees, you know, oh boy, you know, Dudley and uh, uh, Smith are in the use of force log again, you know, three times each. How do you um, separate, separate, you know, the high end, high working uh, police officers with those with low activity? Um, do you ever like take a look and say, hey, why is your activity? You have no complaints, you have no problems, but your uh, level of activity is super low. That's right. And that's something that supervisors need to take a look at too. And, you know, in my book, I talk about the six different groups of police officers. And the one I list is, I call them the sky blue officers because the, there are 20% of the officers out there that need very, very little supervision. Their heart is in the job. They took the job for the right reason. They will do the job no matter what. And in fact, if you had a weak supervisor that, that kind of 
inhibited their ability to do the job, they'd find a way to work around that supervisor, still go out and do the job. Mm-hmm. And then as you go down the continuum of the shades of blue and you get into, say, like the medium blues, then you have officers that will go whichever way their supervisor takes them. If they've got good supervision, they, they can be helped to motivate to do the work. If they've got uncaring or poor supervisors, their performance is going to fall off. And it's going to affect their career. Mm-hmm. And, and so by the time you get down, down to the, the dark blue officers, by the time you get down to the dark blue officers, you're going to have people that are just looking for an excuse not to work. And if you don't have good supervision, the officers in the, in the lighter shades of blue will gravitate towards that because they can see, well, there's not good, strong leadership. So they will gravitate towards the leadership being exhibited by the non-performing officers. So that's, again, we go back to the policy, the training, it's important, and the supervision is important. So if, if you don't have those being done well, the department's not going to function that well. And, and I think that the people who were going to still go out and do the job are the ones who will be the ones that will succeed in the job. They'll learn the job, they'll get promoted on the job, and they'll, they'll have a more satisfying career. Yeah, for sure. Hey, I want to get into your different shades of blue. I think they're really good to talk about. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Sure. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit Lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Chief McNeely, author of The Blue Continuum. Chief, can you give us a sense of how you decide on what's more appropriate? Once you look at a packet, you have uh, an officer sitting in front of you, you're the sergeant, Training, discipline, mentoring, or a combination? What, what are the factors you're looking at? You mean if I'm a sergeant and I get a new officer assigned to me? Yeah, you, you've got his packet in front of you. And for the past 60 days, they've been involved in a traffic collision. Maybe there's a failure to appear at the range or court. Um, they've written 15 reports over that time period. Maybe there's a pattern of... Um, sick time or vacation abuse uh, in conjunction with weekends, you know, the usual. Um, what is What uh, drives you to your resolution, whether or not you say, hey, look, I need to uh, really look into you as far as a disciplinary action or, hey, let's talk about this, what's going on off duty. What, what drives your strategy? Well, first, when the, if you have a good early intervention system, you would get an alert. Like for if, you, if one quarter goes by and the officer has one vehicle collision, you would get an alert. The supervisor would be alerted. Okay, this officer had a collision. If you had two and a quarter, 
you'd have another alert for, we color coded them yellow and red because it becomes more uncommon. It's possible an officer could have a collision. That that happens from time to time. Having two and a quarter is usually pretty rare. Hmm. Same thing with weapons discharge. You have one and a quarter, a yellow alert. If you've got two, that's much more uncommon than you have a red. So and some of the factors were determined by standard deviations because you don't really have a number that you would put on. It, it would depend on your duty location and the time of day you're working, your peer group. So we did standard deviations from an officer's peer group, say, for example, use of force. So you might work in one station and have three uses of force over a quarter, but that's common because just about everybody has three uses of force. And on, on the other hand, if you work in a district where there's very few people using force, if any, then you have three, that might be something that would be a standard deviation or two standard deviations above the norm. So you would take a look at it. Not to say there's anything wrong with it because the early intervention system never makes a determination of whether something's justified or unjustified. All that does is just provide cues to the supervisor. Hmm. Here's something you might want to take a look at because nothing can replace the experience and expertise of the sergeants. Because when the sergeant looks at some data that they should know, say, for example, there's five uses of force and your two standard deviations above the norm. If the supervisor looks at it and they've looked at each one of those use of force reports and they were all justified, they were all legitimate and they were all the reports were completed properly, there's no action that needs to be taken. So just because somebody's identified doesn't mean they've done anything wrong. Sure. And like I said earlier, most of the time it identifies people doing things right. Right, right. They're, they're active. Absolutely. Hey, you know, over the course of my career, I had a chance to um, sit in on a lecture by Edwin uh, Delatre, passed away uh, a couple of years ago. He wrote a book called uh, Character and Cops about ethics. He called some percentage of cops bad apples. We hear it. It's um, I, I don't know if he's the one who coined it, but we hear it in you know popular conversations about uh, police discipline. He said if we didn't identify the bad apples, they had potential of likelihood of spoiling all the officers around them. Right, the one bad apple spoils the whole barrel idea. You rank officers by colors of blue, from sky blue officers being the standard, the best, the brightest, to the midnight blue, the most evil and sinister. The two percenters, I think you might call them. How can an agency uh, ensure that the two percenters don't move up the ranks by testing or appointment? I mean, I know, you know, sitting on panels and doing reviews of uh, promotional lists, uh, we were bound sometimes by HR rules that said, uh, you know, you can have an officer who's got an egregious past, but if they did not receive formal discipline or if they're seven years beyond discipline, you couldn't consider that in promotion. Yeah, and I can understand that. And let me let me just say that uh, if you have somebody that fits in that sky blue, and that's a very small percentage of officers, only one to two percent is what mm -hmm. I say. Okay. And like for example, when I was a commander in the Hill District, I had an officer sent to me. The city refused to hire him. He went to court, and the courts ordered he be hired. And the city didn't want to hire him because he was a gang member and everybody knew he was a gang member. He didn't even hide the fact, you know, he would do these handshakes with other gang members on the street. 
he invited his training officer to his house where he had pictures of everybody in the same color holding weapons. So he was kind of proud of his gang membership, but he was constantly violating policy. And they sent him to me because they knew I wouldn't tolerate that. And I disciplined him five times within a three month period of time. And he eventually was terminated. Uh, so if you've got the supervisors who are willing to put forth the effort and calling out the officers who are doing something wrong, then they won't get that far because they'll be weeded out of the department much sooner before they ever have an opportunity to get promoted. And, and, and let me say too, that, you know, we heard through state mandated training when I was a Pennsylvania police officer, that there were even gang members joining police departments because they wanted to get training to, to take it back to the gangs. So unfortunately, sometimes we draw people who we really don't want to have in a department. So those are the ones I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. Most of the officers by far are nowhere near anything like that. So we're only talking about, and in fact, I had, I had 150 officers in the Hill District when I was assigned there. And maybe I disciplined maybe a dozen. Most of them are minor things. Mm -hmm. There were only three that I disciplined enough times they were terminated. And, and one, two, well, two of them we knew had drug problems. And one was actually pointing at the narcotics detectives to other drug dealers. So, I mean, that was somebody that shouldn't have been on the job because it endangered other police officers. In fact, when I was up in the Hill District, I had two narcotics detectives come to me. And they said, there's an officer in your station who's ripping off drug dealers, giving the drugs to another drug dealer who's selling them and they're splitting the proceeds. Wow. So, and, and they, those detectives came to me for two reasons. First, they knew I'd protect their identity, which nobody ever knows even today who they were. And two, they had faith. They believed I would do something about it because we know it's hard for officers to come forward to talk about other officers that are doing something wrong because they may depend on them for backup someday. Mm -hmm. But my thought was, what if these narcotics detectives are calling for backup because they're arresting these drug dealers on a corner and this officer is backing them up? Yeah, I don't want to jeopardize those officers, the good officers that are out there. And most of the good officers won't say it, but they like a supervisor who will address the bad conduct of Officer, officers when they're doing something wrong. So I think you have the support of most of them, even if they don't say it. Yeah. I, and I think the, you know, the critics often talk about, you know, the, the blue wall of silence and things like that. But I, I think you're right. I think, you know, nobody wants to work with that guy and it's, it is an extreme small uh, percentage in an, in an agency, but from the supervisor's perspective, and I've encountered this over my career, uh, sometimes the supervisor is vilified or attacked. You know, the counterattack is, hey, I've been in this department for X amount of years, and you're the only one who says that I'm deficient or that I'm doing something wrong. That's right. And that officer is going to be in one of the dark blue, the dark blue or midnight blue group. And so supervisors have to know how to address the officers that will do that because if they're not performing or doing something wrong and they don't want to be held accountable, they'll either 
do whatever they have to do to intimidate that supervisor. Like I've heard Vosser saying, you don't want to be sued when I sue the city and the rest of the supervisors. And, and so that's happened. If you read my chapter 11, I talk about the urban legend and what they, what they claim me and my wife were responsible for. And an officer went to prison for that for a year for perjury for saying that under oath. Hmm. So there are officers out there that will make stuff up if they don't have something on a supervisor to hold over them. If they can find something to hold over in, on them, they'll do it because that's the race in the hole to be able to continue doing whatever they're doing. Supervisors need to have the courage to be able to withstand that. Taking a supervisor's job is not an easy thing to do. I found that out when I became a sergeant. I thought it was just you were just going to lead some people in, in the police department. There's a lot more to supervision and understanding motivations and understanding the type of people who are working for you. And so when I break down the different categories of officers, like the first group, the sky blue, that's a 20% that you can be a lazy fair supervisor. You just tell them what to do. They'll go do it. And they'll make you proud. And they'll get the awards. But, you know, when you go down a couple, a little bit further on the continuum, you'll find that there are some officers that need a lot more direction, need a little bit of help with motivating because they're discouraged possibly. And if you give it to them, you'll rise their level of performance. You'll make them much happier about the job they're doing. But if you don't, they can gravitate down that continuum and, and be less productive, be more angry about coming to work. So a lot of it rests on the supervisor. It takes courage to be a supervisor. I, I really commend, and I went to chief's meetings for so many years in Pittsburgh. I belong to the major city chiefs. We met three times a year. And everybody pretty much agreed. If you've got good sergeants and lieutenants, your job's easy. If you don't have good sergeant lieutenants, you've got a lot of problems. Yeah, you make, I mean, I'm going to wrap it up in a second here, but you make really good points about good sergeants. Um, but also the, the fact that, you know, throughout these phases of your continuum, that you do have that top ranked officer, you say, okay, here's roll call. Um, here's your assignments. See you later. End of watch. Totally productive. Great reports. Little supervision needed. You got to really, you know, light a fire under the, you know, the lower end of that scale. But sometimes as a supervisor, we tend to spend so much of our time and effort and energy on that low end that we don't give enough of the recognition or the kudos to that top performing uh, percentage and the, and the people in the middle, right? I mean, you jump in, you go for a ride along, maybe you buy them lunch or have a cup of coffee with them or something like that. But how else can we recognize and reward that sort of upper third of our, um, you know, our squad of officers we're supervising to, to let them know that we do appreciate it. We know what they're doing. Yeah, you're right. And like they say, when it comes to discipline, 90% of your discipline should be positive reinforcement. Because discipline, people think of that as all negative, and it can be. But discipline comes from the word disciple, where you want just people to follow the way you want them to go. And 90% of the time, it can be done with positive reinforcement. When I was chief in Pittsburgh, we doubled and tripled, actually, the number of awards we would give. And we had regular awards ceremony. And officers who received rewards not only got the recognition, but sometimes got a day off for their good performance. And so at first, you're seeing that top 20%, and you will always see them at the award ceremony. But then 
eventually you start seeing more and more officers. And it got to the point where we even had awards for good conduct if you weren't disciplined within three years or if you didn't have a vehicle crash within three years. And once the officer got the three years in, they were demanding their, their ribbon to wear with their uniform. Nice. It nice. seems like a minor thing, but police officers like to be recognized for the good jobs that they do. And they do a lot of good work out there in our community. And a lot of times they don't get the recognition or don't get the support from their supervisors. That's why I said it's so hard to be a supervisor because you got so many things to do. You, you not only are running the shift and doing the paperwork, but you're disciplining the officers who are way out of line, you know, the midnight blue officers, but you've got to be rewarding all the other groups as, the, as they come along. In fact, sometimes even the midnight blue can do a good job. We had one officer who off duty saw a shooting and he actually unarmed chased the shooter and, and tackled him and arrested him. Wow. We gave him a bureau award for it, but then he got fired because he was also strung out on drugs and, he ended up losing three different guns that he had been issued. So sometimes you've got the performers that they look so good, but that, you know, they make so many grievous mistakes. Yeah. And you make a good point about, uh, you know, sometimes we tend to, you know, get an image of an officer, but I believe that just about any officer can be resurrected, even if they've been poor performing for, you know, a pattern of years that um, with, with the right kind of training, the right kind of supervision, they can be resurrected to be really good cops again. I agree with you. And you mentioned earlier that somebody hadn't been disciplined in seven years. That says a lot. Because mm -hmm. keep in mind that just because an officer is disciplined or counseled, that shouldn't ruin his or her whole career that only corrected a small problem. And obviously, if there's nothing that followed from that, then you corrected the problem. There's nothing more to worry about. Mm -hmm. I mean, you still have to monitor the early intervention system just to make sure that everybody else is still doing what they should be doing. But I don't think discipline a one time ends a person's career. You're right. Anybody can change. Yep. Hey, I want to wrap up with this because you said it and I totally believe it that sergeants are the backbone of an agency. They can make your organization look awesome. They can <laughs> squash, you know, as chief of police, you know, you can push down some policies, but if it gets caught in the filter between the captain and the lieutenant to the sergeant, I mean, a sergeant can submarine a policy that you thought was going to be great uh, at roll call um, or in dispensing it. But uh, you know, how do you reach down to the sergeant to make sure your message is clear? How do you jump that middle management to, to get that communication to the sergeant to say, hey, I need the buy-in. Um, this is going to be really important. Yeah, you're right. And let me say this. When I was a lieutenant, um, <clears throat> there were officers who were complaining about the chief and my response always was, you know what, as lieutenant, I have more impact on my officers than any chief ever had. Because they looked you for that leadership. It, it, like I was in the Marine Corps, when, when you go out there in the field and that lieutenant is with you in the field, it doesn't matter what a general is saying. You're looking at that lieutenant. You're depending on that lieutenant to be able to provide for you what you need, even in the guidance and the protection or safety, whatever it is. So the lieutenants really do make a big difference. 
All right. Well, Chief, any last words? Uh, the Blue Continuum, I'm going to read it. I've read excerpts. I think it, I think you got some great stuff going for you. I think new sergeants would really benefit from reading the book and uh, learning from you. Uh, any final words? Yeah, I just want to add one more thought to what we were talking about. You said, how does the chief reach the lieutenants? One of the things I did is, and it started with our consent decree, that was because that was 1997. That was the first, after I had been chief one year, I scheduled seven training sessions a year, two on night turn, three in afternoon, and two on daylight. Every supervisor in the department, sergeant, lieutenant, commander, assistant chief, they all had a 10-1 training session. And it was seven hours long. And we talked about different subject matter every year, depending on what was necessary at the time. So I thought that was one of the most important things I did as chief is meet with all my supervisors. And I just believe that you have to be out there. You have to have contact with them to be able to convince them that what you're doing makes sense. Absolutely. Hey, thanks so much, Chief, for appearing on the show, for your words of wisdom, for your book, The Blue Continuum. Uh, we're going to put a link underneath the show notes to let listeners know where to find your book. Thanks for your military service. Thanks for your service as Chief of Pittsburgh. Uh, tough town, from what I've heard, uh, and passing your wisdom along to help uh, the next level of law enforcement leadership. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jim. I'm honored to be a part of your program. Thank you. You bet. Hey, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show with Chief Robert McNeely. And uh, let us know what you think. Let us know if you have an idea or someone you'd like to hear about or from. And drop me a line, drop me an email at policingmatters at police1.com, policingmatters at police1.com. All right, stay safe, uh, be well, and hope to see you again real soon.